And so with that, I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament. Uh, If you open up your Bibles to that, that would be great. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 752 or 753, something like that. And uh, and as you're turning there, as you're getting this open, I want to remind you that we're in this series that's called Humankind, and we're looking at the human interactions of Jesus, the times when Jesus had conversations with people. We're talking about these conversations and seeing the way that Jesus moved in those moments, the way he spoke, the way, the way he treated people in these moments. And the one we're looking at today is one of my favorites. Uh, it, it's one of my favorites because uh, I think there's a way that it's been understood that's been really misunderstood for years. And I think we actually learn something beautiful from Jesus and especially as Jesus people who are following him. I think we learn a lot about how we move through our life and our days from what we're going to see here. But before we get into this, before we dive into it, I want to do something a little different. I want to go to the end of the story. I want to go to the end because there's an encounter that Jesus has. And then after this encounter, this is what we read. This is like the outcome or the result of what takes place. So verse 39 says this, says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So there's this woman and she has an interaction. She has an encounter with Jesus And then after this encounter with Jesus, she goes back to her town, which by the way, is an extraordinarily unlikely town to experience what it experienced. She goes back to her town and there is this radical movement that takes place. The city, the community she lives in literally changes because of the encounter that Jesus is having with this woman. And I love this story because that's my dream for us. My dream is that we would be so impacted by Jesus that we could not help but impact the community that's around us, right? That we would be so profoundly impacted that we couldn't help have an influence on the people that we do life with. But my hope is that that when people come in contact with us, when people interact with us, that they would be more interested in Jesus because of us. They'd be more interested in the story of Jesus because of our story with Jesus. That's my hope for us. But unfortunately, and I think this is the reality, I don't think it's always the case. Um, We have a reputation, and I'm not saying we as a specific church, but Christians have a reputation, right? Let me give you an example. Um, Years and years ago, Sherry and I, we started diving into the restaurant and hospitality industry uh, because it's an area where so many people are living at the poverty line. There's very few services that, that are there for them. It's the largest working class, working group in our culture, and it's one of the most at risk on so many levels. And we saw this need, and we started getting involved. One of the first things we discovered is this. Most people working in restaurants don't want to work Sundays, and it's not because they want to be in church. Christians have an industry-wide reputation everywhere for being the pickiest of people, the most demanding of people, and the worst tippers. This is the reputation of Christians in the restaurant industry. When you ask uh, people that are outside the church, non-church people, when they're asked for their impressions of Christianity, they often respond with these two words, judgmental and ignorant. Ignorant. That's the reputation. 
Also, did you know this? When you go back in a person's story, their journey of faith, somebody who has decided to follow Jesus, if you go back in that person's story, what you'll discover is the most significant turning point is usually this. This is well-documented. They'll tell you this. They'll say, at one point, I met a Christian that I could finally trust, which means they didn't trust all the rest until that person, right? That says something about our reputation, and it's quite a contrast from what Jesus called us to. He said we're supposed to be like a pleasant aroma, a city set on a hill, a light for all to see, that we would be known for our joy, that we'd be known for our love, that we would be known for our unity, for our peace. And that's what I want for all of us. I don't, I don't want any of us to repel people. And, and I, don't, I don't want to even just get along with people. Like, we all just put our heads down and figure out a way just to get along with each other. I want to live my life in such a way that people find Jesus fascinating and interesting and appealing because of me. And I want the same thing for you. Which, which is why I, I find this interaction in the book of John that Jesus has so compelling Because what happened before this town kind of came to life? What happened in this interaction? Jesus shows us some things about how we carry ourselves in the way he discusses things with this woman. So I'm going to read this, and then it's kind of a big chunk, and then we're going to talk about it together. So back to verse 1 of John chapter 4, it says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he'd have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So I want to clarify a few things around this story today. 
Because I've heard a lot of people over the years in a lot of different ways unpack this story and, and talk about this woman in a way that I think has contributed to some of the ignorant, judgmental assumptions that people make about Christians. I, I've heard this story in such a way that really gives this woman a bad rap. Like she was this horrible person who'd done horrible things. And like the, the reason that she has this awakening is because Jesus finally points out all the bad, broken stuff in her life. And that's, that's what makes her change. That's what reconciles her to God. And I want to contend that the things in this story that we see don't exactly look the way they appear on the surface. We're going to see this. Now, is she reconciled to God? Yes, she's reconciled to God. But that's not the only thing happening here. And when we just talk about what happens between a person and God, like vertically, vertically speaking in this text, we miss the whole story of the gospel because this text and what we're going to see, it demonstrates that when Jesus reconciles us to God, he also reconciles us across every other horizontal relational divide that may exist in our life. There is a holistic reconciliation that takes place. He reconciles horizontally our gender differences, our economic differences, our racial and ethnic and cultural differences. When we get reconciled to God, we get reconciled to each other and to God. They both take place. And I want you to see that in the text today. And I want you to see that there, there's more about this woman that is like us than it is unlike us today. I want, you to, I want you to see this. You notice that she doesn't have a name. She's just been known as the Samaritan woman throughout history. And maybe the reason that she doesn't have a name is so that we could insert any name into this story. Could it be that she remains nameless because her name is our name? Is this our story? Is this your story? So let me tell you a little bit about her. She grew up in a society that discriminated against her because of her gender and her ethnicity. And if you don't understand that part of who she is, you'll never understand her story. Samaritans were considered half-breed dogs in Jewish society, and that's exactly how they were treated. They were despised. There was no self-respecting Jew who would be caught dead with a Samaritan. They didn't talk to them. They didn't even walk through their countryside. It's amazing. One of the most amazing parts of this story is that Jesus is even at this specific location at this time. The Jews took two different tracks around Samaria just to avoid contact with Samaritans. And on this journey, Jesus has walked right through their country. And the reconciliation that takes place in this text happens because Jesus does what nobody else would do. Which... Kind of a side note for us. If we are going to be a reconciling force for God in the world today, it means that we are probably going to have to do some things that nobody else is doing. Are you with me on this? It means we're going to have to talk to some people that other people don't talk to and hang out in places that other people aren't hanging out. If we're going to be light in a dark world, if we're going to be a sight for sore eyes, if we're going to bring life and joy and grace, then we're going to need to talk a little bit more like Jesus, and we're going to need to walk a little bit more like Jesus. We're going to have to live a little bit more like Jesus and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Brenda Salter McNeil, I love this quote from her. She says, if we're going to be God's people living in this day at this time, we will have to choose to do what no one else will do. If you are God's people, you're going to have to choose to do things nobody else is doing. 
And John 4 shows us what Jesus is doing that nobody else is doing. All of this woman's life, she has heard messages that tell her that she is less than. She's been told she comes from the wrong side of the family tree. She's been told that she grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. She grew up in a culture where Jews considered anything unclean if the shadow of a Samaritan fell on it. As a woman in this culture, she would have heard things that would have completely shaped her own sense of identity, her own view of herself. There, there was a prayer that Jewish leaders that were male of that day, that they would pray. They literally prayed this prayer. They would say, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, an imbecile, or a woman. That was the prayer of leaders in Judaism of the day. The Pharisees actually created extra laws that, that determined Samaritan women to be perpetually unclean. They spread rumors that Samaritan women were perpetually menstruating, therefore making them continually unclean. That's what this woman lived with every day of her life. That meant wherever she walked, wherever she went, whatever she touched would be unclean for a period of time. People would avoid even the spaces that she was around. To hear those kinds of things, to live in that kind of culture day in and day out and know that there's never gonna be anything positively portrayed about you, that wears on you. You're never gonna be on the cover of magazines. You're, 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 never, you're never gonna have a special human interest story told about you that's positive. There's never gonna be anyone who ever recognizes the image of God in you, that your life matters, that God loves you. And when you live in that space, it does something to you. So I ask you to think about that. What does all of that do to a person's understanding of who they are? What does that do to a person's sense of identity or their sense of worth? What do, you, what do you do with that? It creates a hole inside of you. It creates a chasm inside of you, which then leads to you looking to fill that, to satisfy that in all of the wrong places. That, that's why we can't just point fingers and cast judgment at this woman because that trivializes her story. She has lived in a society that has beat her down. Whenever we find ourselves in a place like that, what do we do? If, if you and I are in a place where we're looking for affirmation, what do we do? If we didn't get affirmation from our families, if we didn't get affirmation from our culture, if we didn't get affirmation from, from our friends, we start looking for affirmation in other places. And so what did this woman do? She does the same thing we do. She went looking for it in romantic relationships. She, she heard the same kind of story we hear, that if there's something vacant in your hole, well, maybe there's another person that can satisfy this vacancy. And so she dove into that, which is why her story is really not that different from ours. She thought, if I could just be loved by one man, one man. And I believe that when we meet her in this story, she's had it. She has had it. She comes to the well at noon. This is a really interesting indicator. She does that because she doesn't want to see anybody. Nobody goes to the well at noon. So she's tired of the looks on people's faces and she knows what they're going to be thinking. She's worn down from being judged. So imagine her surprise when she shows up and there's this Jewish guy leaning on the well and he goes, hey, would you possibly give me a drink? In her mind, she's thinking, if you knew who I was, if you knew where I was last night, if you knew the reason that I came here at noon, if you knew me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to speak to me. You wouldn't want to be seen with me. And little does she know, 
she's exactly who Jesus wants to be seen with, isn't she? He's not afraid of her. Her story is not too much for him. She's not gonna share something. He goes, oh, haven't heard that one before, right? By the way, the same goes for you. Your story is not too much for Jesus. I believe we're in this text today because somebody here, some of us needed to hear this, that, that Jesus, he can handle your story. He can handle it. I also love the way Jesus walks into this conversation. I love how he starts it. How wonderful is it that Jesus didn't start by talking to her about her background or about her history or about her ethnicity or about her gender or about her past marriages. That's not how he starts. He just said one thing. He said, could I get your help? Do you realize what this means to her? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if we would start our conversations by seeing what people have to offer us, what we can learn from them, how they could help us? What if we approached people with the value that they intrinsically possess rather than making people feel condemned? What if instead of trying to take moral high ground, making people feel less than, we actually brought value and meaning to their lives? What, what if we offered, before we ever offered anyone anything, we asked for a drink? What if we did this this way? See, this, this woman, Jesus gives her dignity in his very first words to her. He gives her value. He says, you have something to offer me. I am the one that's vulnerable to you right now and you have something for me. And let me just say this and pause here. Every single person we encounter has something to offer us, amen? Homeless, refugee, someone from a different cultural background, someone from a different economic background, someone from any other different kind of, anyone out there has water to offer us. And we start there. If you're taking notes, maybe this is something you can jot down, just a big idea, that Jesus people, we bring worth and value to all people whether they believe the way we do or not. By the way, you notice I call us Jesus people. I get tired of saying that we're Christians because when I say I'm a Christian, it sounds like I'm aligning to an organization and organizations can be cold and lifeless. When I say I'm a Jesus person, it means I'm aligning with the person of Jesus. And when I think about that, now I feel like there's accountability and responsibility for me to move through my days like Jesus. If I'm a Jesus person, that means I represent Jesus. And that's really different than just saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe these certain tenets. So Jesus people people that love and follow Jesus, we bring worth and value to all people whether they believe like we do or not. Why? Because all people everywhere are made in the image of God. Everybody is. So, so Jesus wants to drink from her cup and nobody wants to drink from her cup. And so she's stunned. In fact, my guess is that she probably was trying to disregard him. And then Jesus says something to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is so interesting that he does this. He says something really intriguing to her, right? He says this very innovative, kind of mysterious thing. He's kind of luring her in, right? Well, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. What? Like, what kind of thing is this? Wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of platitudes about how people need Jesus, or instead of telling people how messed up they are, which by the way, people already know they're broken and messed up. Can we just all admit that? We already know we're messed up. 
What if instead of guilt and condemnation and judgment, we took the time to make Jesus a little more interesting? (laughs) The way he makes himself interesting, right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't announce, I'm the Messiah, believe in me. He doesn't do that. He's like, hey, if you knew, you'd ask me for living water. Well, what's this living water all about, right? What if there was something about you? What if there was something about me that made people want to be around us? Jesus becomes intriguing to this woman. So she takes him up on his offer. Living water? <laughs> I'll take some of that. Why? Because everyone who comes back to this well is still thirsty. This is a beautiful metaphor, by the way. This is a metaphor, and it says something about our insatiable desires and the nature of our brokenness. No matter what it is that we are trying to fill the hole in our soul with, romantic relationships, workaholism, people-pleasing ice cream, barbecue, whatever it is, right? Because sometimes we try those things too, right? Accolades from work, trying to get the picket fence, the American dream, the house, the cars, the perfect little yard, doing all those things. Whatever it is, whatever it is, Jesus says, I don't care what you're using. It could be really good things. I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's bad. If you're trying to use those things to quench that thirst, if you keep coming back to those wells, you're always going to come back thirsty, some of us keep going back to wells that aren't ever going to quench our thirst. Some of us are going to wells and they're bone dry on the bottom, but we just keep going back. The only thing that is ever going to quench this thirst is the power and the presence, the person of Jesus. That's it. So she hears Jesus and she says, you're right. It isn't working. And Jesus says, that's great. Go get your husband. And to be honest, I get a little frustrated with Jesus right here. You know, because like old time church people, we'd say, well, she's ready, man. Seal the deal. Have her walk the aisle. Raise the hand. Pray the prayer. Do the thing. Like, why did you ask her this question, right? Why'd you tell her to go get her husband? And, and, and here, here's why I think Jesus does this. Some people, you know, they want to say that Jesus was trying to shame her in this moment, draw her out, make her feel guilty. That's not who Jesus is, right? So what was Jesus doing? Why did Jesus say to her, go get your husband? I think it's this reason. He's saying this, and in doing it, he's saying, before you can value the real thing, I need you to identify the counterfeit in your life. I want to make a divine swap with you. And before I do that, I need you to name the thing that's not satisfying you. So go, go get your husband. He, he's saying, you give me what doesn't work and I'm gonna give you what does work. And, and you know how there's those times when you know things aren't working, but you don't have the energy to talk about it? Like, like, you know, but denial is so much easier than facing the facts. That's where she lives. So she says, Jesus, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't. You've had five and the guy you're with right now isn't one of them. But let me tell you something about her before you start to judge her or condemn her. You already know a big part of her story. But did you know that a woman in this culture could not divorce a man Only a man could divorce a woman. Did you know that? And you could divorce a woman for having things like this. 
a physical abnormality that you didn't see prior to marriage. You could divorce a woman if she couldn't bear you children. You could divorce a woman if she wasn't a good cook. And all you had to do, if you were a man, all you had to do was take her to a public place, the town square, the market in your city. All you had to do was walk her out there and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Which means that five times, five different men who had said, I do, and didn't, walked this woman into the center of her town and said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Maybe she's so damaged, she doesn't even want somebody to marry her. She's just trying not to be homeless at this point. See, we don't, cho we don't choose this stuff, right? We don't... We, we, we drink from a well, right? We drink from a well and then we just start going back and we keep going back and we keep going back. That's not something like we go, oh man, I just want to live in this destructive behavior. All the pleasing, all the working, all the substances, all the stuff, all the romance, all those different things, we just, we just keep going back and Jesus comes to this well. He meets us and says, I want to exchange this with you. I know you're doing everything you know to do. And that hole that you have inside of you is not getting filled up. And he says, I want to give you a well that springs up from within you. Something that fills you from the inside out and flows out of you. So Jesus tells this woman, the person that you're looking for is me. The answer that you seek, I have. The, the, the healing that you long for, I'm the one that brings it. So this is kind of the last thing that we learn here, that Jesus people, we drink in living water and we serve it up to others generously. That's what we do. What's Jesus saying? Well, if you're one of my people, then, then you drink living water. That doesn't mean you don't occasionally wander past those other wells, but it means maybe after a few days or a few weeks, you stop yourself and you say, what am I doing? This is never going to fill me up. This thing I'm chasing, this is never going to satisfy me. And you go back to him, Right? Whenever we get the chance, we drink living water. We remind ourselves, no, it's in him. It's his life. It's his power. It's his way that I discover what I'm actually looking for. And then with respect and intrigue, we allow others to get a taste because they're around us, because we're drinking it. We're experiencing it. We're living it. Leaves us with a couple of questions. I think the first question is really obvious, and that's, are you drinking living water? I, I, I just, when I think about this, I think we have this tendency, like we look at our life and we look at these little chunks of our life, you know, the things that we're doing, like the, the house and the work and maybe the romantic relationships and all the other things that we're trying to fill our life with. And, and this is what I think even for a lot of people that are Jesus people, what they mistakenly do, they take the living water and they sprinkle it on all of these other things, but we don't actually ever change the well that we're looking to to satisfy our thirst. We're still looking at all the same things, but we're just watering them with Jesus now, right? But we haven't made the exchange. We're just like, Jesus, would you bless this? And we sprinkle the living water on here. And we just, would you bless this? Would you bless this? Would you bless this? But they're all just various forms of idolatry because we've never, even the good things, we've not swapped them for the real thing. And so the question is, are you, are you sprinkling like 
the holy water on your life and hoping Jesus will bless it? Or are you drinking the living water? Are you, are you drinking in the life of Jesus? Are you living in him? Are you pursuing him? So that's the first thing for us just to wrestle with today. And I don't know that we can answer that in this moment, but it's something to wrestle with. Am I really drinking living water? And then secondly, are you really serving it up to those around you? Like when people come in contact with you, do they get curious about Jesus because you seem to quench something that they're looking for? I want to close with this. There's a song um, we used to sing around church. I used to sing it. I remember when I was, uh, occasionally would go to my high school group. When I was, you guys come way more than I used to come to church, by the way, our high schoolers over here. Uh, when I would come to my high school group, they would sing this song. And then in college, I remember I went to this college ministry and occasionally we sang it. And uh, it was called, I've Got a River of Life. Some of you remember that song, I've Got a River of Life flowing. You, know, you guys remember that? And they had hand motions and noises. And we would sing it and I would get so embarrassed. I'm like, this is why I don't invite my friends to church right here. Like, you guys do this stupid stuff. I'm not bringing my friends. You knock it off, I'll invite them, you know? But they would sing these songs and I, and I, I hated that song. I hated it. But the words are actually really powerful and they come from the text that we're looking at today. And it actually proclaims this bold truth about who we can become and so I want to close a little bit differently today. Would you stand with me? In kind of a, an extended benediction this morning, I want to just read these as a sort of a prophetic prayer, a benediction over you today. Um, so if you're willing, maybe hold out your hands to receive and I'll offer this to you. My prayer for you is that you could sing or say these words. I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see, opens prison doors and sets captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, and give to me that life abundantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Remember, our kids team is out in the commons to talk to you about camp. Have an amazing, amazing week, and we'll see you guys next Sunday. Pancakes next Sunday, I promise. <laughs>